And so we might say this is an experience of the void. Hey everyone, Josh here. Thanks for tuning into the Digital Void podcast. Today, I'm speaking with insider digital culture editor and writer Rachel E. Greenspan. Rachel will be a speaker at Digital Void's Halloween-themed Meme in the Moment Festival on Wednesday, October 27th at Caveat New York City, where we'll celebrate and interrogate digital culture in physical space. She'll be joined by speakers including Garbage Day's Ryan Broderick, Insider's Kat Tenbarge, NBC's Callan Rosenblatt, The Verge's McKenna Kelly, and cultural strategist Matt Klein. The event will be hosted by memeticist Dr. Jamie Cohen and will feature a book signing by author of The Palmer Hotel, Rick Paulus. Make sure to wear your favorite internet-themed costume and join us live, in-person, underground, and fully vaccinated. Tickets are available now at caveat.nyc or at digitalvoid.media. I'm really excited to dive into the conversation with Rachel. We discuss her career path to the disinformation beat in the middle of 2020, how the insurrection showed us that it's far too dangerous to ignore disinformation and misinformation beats, and why right-wing media tried to frame journalists as elites for holding power to account. Rachel E. Greenspan is an editor on the Digital Culture Desk at Insider, with expertise covering online misinformation and disinformation, far-right extremism and right-wing media, and conspiracy theories like QAnon. In 2021, she won an inaugural American Journalism Online Award from NYU's Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute for her coverage of QAnon. Rachel, congratulations on the award, and thanks so much for being here. Josh, thank you so much. That award is is right here on my fridge like a nerd i can see it right now um so happy to be here thank you for having me yeah well uh, not like a nerd uh, you should definitely deserve it and your hard work is doing incredible things to help show the influence of digital culture on physical space but let's start from the very beginning because i'm interested in your journey can you share your story about how you broke into journalism i would love to okay um how i began my journey into journalism. Okay, so I have always been kind of like into journalism as a hobby, you know, like my dad would would hand me cool New Yorker articles to read when I was younger and and just that kind of thing and I've also always considered myself a writer, you know, as as many as many writers do. I feel it was just like part of how I perceived myself in the world as like a child and everything. So I always kind of thought in the back of my head, you know, I want to be a journalist, but then I got, and then I, in high school was editor in chief of my high school newspaper, Hall Highlights, shout out, um, and loved that. And then in college, I went to SUNY Binghamton, which does not have a a journalism program, but however, it does have an amazing student-run newspaper. Um, so I was very involved in the student newspaper. That was like my favorite thing of college, but senior year of college came around and I was like, all right, well, I want to make money. And everyone in my family is telling me that, you know, there's no money in journalism. So like, I can't, I can't be a journalist. Like that's not going to happen because I want to have a reliable job, source of income, whatever. So I basically was applying to tons of like copywriting type marketing jobs and that kind of thing. Um, and then I did still apply to a couple journalism jobs because I was like, I might as well. 
which I mean, what should be obvious in what I just said is everyone was wrong, in my opinion, when they told me that they're, I mean, people don't understand the media industry. Like, obviously, it's not as easy to get a job as like, if you become an accountant, but like, I don't know, it's not, it's not like the heart, it's not like the heart, it's not like as hard as trying to be on Broadway or something like that. Like, certainly not, which that's, I think, how a lot of people perceive it, or at least in my world right and it's like okay maybe if you want to try to write for gothamist and am new york and try to become a new york times writer in six months that won't happen maybe that was the way of the 1970s or 80s but today it's a totally different game so you had obstacles in the form of people telling you maybe what was or was not possible but once you ended up applying for jobs what obstacles did you encounter once you entered a professional space well, so what ended up happening was I got very lucky and an alum of my college newspaper was an editor at Time on the news desk and she posted in the Facebook group of, you know, social media always doing everything for us, uh, very on brand for this talk, um, posted in a Facebook group of alumni editors from the newspaper and was like, I need someone to do this entry level like news desk assistant job if anyone's interested and like she posted at like 11 p.m on a tuesday and i immediately emailed her and was like me 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 please 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 and she's like oh come chat with me tomorrow and then i got that job and in that position i faced what like many new green fresh out of college journalists face which is like i want to write i want to report I don't want to like be an assistant, but you have to do move, do steps to like get to that place that you're not going to just be handed a job as a real reporter right out of college in most scenarios. And so I kind of, I honestly, I think I enjoyed the challenge of like trying to leverage my connections in the newsroom in that position to like get someone to hire me as a full-time reporter and not just be an assistant not just, but you know, just, I, I, and also it was like a contract role. So it was, you know, could be taken away at any moment type thing. Um, and then I got this amazing piece of advice that I will share here from an editor who I was talking to. He said, you know, one of the best things you can do for yourself in journalism is pick a thing that you can be the expert on in the, in the newsroom. And, you know, everyone has to go to you for that thing. Pick a thing, pick two things, pick three things that you're the expert on. Um, and it'll, it'll really help you. And so I, basically became the Royals beat reporter uh, for a while because it was like at the time when Harry and Meghan were having a baby slash then eventually leaving the royal family. Anyway, so just I really took that advice and like started doing that, became a full-time reporter there. And I really wanted to cover the internet full-time, which I was definitely doing some cool things at time that were uh, digital culture stories, but it was clearly not something that like many places are considering as like a, you know, serious enough beat to like have someone full-time dedicated to it. So Insider was starting this digital culture desk. I reached out to Ben Goggin, the senior editor here on digital culture and the rest is history with, with how I got to this job. That was like extremely rambly. No, 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 no apologies. I think it, it's really important. Become the expert in something and have people come to you as the most reliable, trusted source about that beat. And it's interesting. When I was researching your work, I discovered, and maybe let me know if this is correct, but I think your first piece for Insider was about the rise of Jake Paul right after the FBI in, uh, invaded his house in October 2019, right? So that was not my first story for Insider, but... It's an old story for Insider that I updated in the last like year and a half, but our CMS, I don't think at the time, I think I updated that like 2020, I don't think it had like a good like update system. We do now, when you update a story on Insider, it says, you know, updated at whatever. 
that's so interesting because I wanted to look back to see what your most original story was to then look at how you went from influencer culture to misinformation, disinformation, and the QAnon beat because it's such an interesting path and they coalesce with one another, especially with what happened in 2020. So can you share that journey from covering Jake Paul and influencer culture and Royals culture or the Royals beat to becoming a misinformation, disinformation, QAnon beat reporter? Oh my goodness. Love that question. So I can tell you exactly what happened. So I started being a reporter at Insider in March 2020. Obviously, we know what was happening in March 2020, both in the world and also um, on the internet at large. And so I started out, you know, thinking I was going to mostly do, like you said, like influencer creator culture stuff. I like profiled Dixie D'Amelio and someone in the blog, blog, Gotti Sire, like I was doing those kinds of things. And also just kind of general digital culture news hits. Um, I did one story in like my first two weeks in March 2020 that was like a news hit about researchers finding one of the many disturbing details about Facebook spreading misinformation, basically. Um, and so I did a story on that and I felt there's something about writing it that I was like, wow, this feels important. Like there was misinformation related to COVID-19 and I was like, you know what, that is what I want to do more of. Um, and so I basically started just pitching a lot more stories on misinformation and wrote one or two stories that also specifically was about QAnon, became like very into it, like kind of adopted that old lesson from the editor at time of become the expert on something. So I became the expert on, on QAnon here um, and then was basically, you know, this is very like uh, inside baseball media y, but was asked to like full time cover QAnon as basically like an experiment to see if that was something that we wanted a reporter to be on full time. Well, that's so interesting to me. This is the place to be inside baseball. This is totally 100% the place, but it's so interesting. I mean, to March 2020, you discover that there is a real need to cover not just mis and disinformation, but COVID related craziness is really the way to say it. But there's always been a curiosity and a tension between um, reporting on mis and disinformation and as as a real and important threat and platforming, essentially giving it the Barbara Streisand effect and mainstreaming a belief or a story that otherwise wouldn't gain any national traction. So at a moment when you begin to encounter uh, videos like the pandemic and the rise of conspiracies like Wayfair in the summer of 2020, these are all rabbit holes for radicalization. How were you able to separate the signal from the noise as someone who just jumped over to becoming a full-time beat reporter? That's interesting. I would say first of all, I was reading basically everything about far misinformation. Like I had Google alerts set for everything, like every morning would read basically everything from Will Sommer at the Daily Beast who covers QAnon, you know, Kevin Roos at the New York Times, obviously, some like McKenna Kelly stories, basically like every story I could get my hands on, on that was involved in this feed, I wanted to read. So I tried to just stay like as up to date as possible. And like there is, and particularly was at the time, an insane amount of news on this feed. And the thing is like, the I think the big issue that a lot of newsrooms struggle with is like, yeah, like when to kind of give attention to the something and when to, when to ignore it because it's dangerous or whatever. But like the insurrection showed that you really can't ignore anything because it's quote unquote dangerous because it's gonna like the, these, these online conspiracy theories are not, they're not online. Like they're spreading online, but they're spreading to real, real human beings with real lives. Um, and so that was kind of my, like my kind of, ethos, I guess, in, in the kind of exploring these beats was like, 
is this um, rising to the level of newsworthiness in the sense of, you know, random people should be aware that there are other people thinking this? That's one thing. That's kind of, that was also how I started to view QAnon as like, people need to know this is a thing that's going on. People need to know that like their coworker or their uncle or whoever, you know, might suddenly believe in this wild theory. And like with the Wayfair example you mentioned, July 2020, that was completely originated by a QAnon influencer on Twitter as Ben Collins of NBC News, the king of uh, disinformation reporting, originally reported that. But like that theory was all over my Instagram of like, you know, regular people I know who like are normal, you know, quote unquote normal, like educated, young, otherwise like hip and people who would even probably call themselves like woke, you know, and they're like spreading this conspiracy theory that's like originated from this far right extremist movement without knowing. So I just think it's just keeping trying to keep track of, of the kind of links of all of those pieces. And the links can seemingly go on forever, right? Like digital flattens everything into one. And do you ever find yourself in a spot where in trying to describe a story about QAnon or Wayfair, you somehow end up describing how people thought that Hillary Clinton tripping over a street corner in 2016 was like the manifestation of an ancient Egyptian frog god like Keck. And like, because I can't discuss this without being like, well, then this happened and this happened. And oh, by the way, a million people actually believe that Pepe got Trump elected. <laughs> no, it, it's really, it is wild. I definitely, especially in like my regular life, when someone mentions anything about the far right or QAnon or any kind of conspiracy theories, like I immediately, I've like become like a Wikipedia mouth vomit. I'm like going down. Like, and it's at one point my editor, Ben Doggan, um, he assigned me a story and I, I am now an editor on the team, but only as of the spring of 2021. Um, so at some point in 2020, um, I was assigned a story that was basically just like, here is the history of QAnon and its evolution. And I literally was like, all right, here we fucking go. Like, I am just going through this, like, step by step. I'm like, okay, first Pizzagate, you know, then Edgar Madison Welch shoots up the Comet Ping Pong in DC, realizes there are no babies there. But yet, still, a year later, QAnon is born, uh, like, fully off the tails of that. Like, so, you know, I, definitely it's, it's funny because, like, it is kind of, a, a net well QAnon is now definitely like a network of conspiracy theories so even just the language you use to describe it has evolved in so much in just the last year like when I would first write about QAnon in like April 2020 it would be like QAnon the far right conspiracy theory falsely alleging Trump is trying to take down this deep state cabal of pedophiles and human traffickers um, whereas now it's like QAnon the far right movement originally based on the idea that because it's like literally something entirely different now. And like the thing about QAnon, the reason that it's thrived so much and, you know, there are still people who believe in it so many months later is like QAnon power players, like the influencers who basically like encourage their followers to continue believing in it. Um, they keep looking for these new clues that kind of indicate additional things like you, you know, like you said, oh, Hillary tripped on the sidewalk on this day. So whatever. And like basically every news event, the QAnon world finds a way in, finds a way to say, oh, this is actually because Bill Gates did X, Y, and Z. Like, Yeah, yeah. And it all seems to funnel right back 
to an anti-elitist populist attitude. And we're seeing like this emergence of populist sentiment in the United States from both the left and the right. On the left, you had Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and, and populist movements. And on the right, you saw Donald Trump and the rise of, of those movements. But it's, it's rooted in this anti-elitism attitude. I was so taken by a piece that you wrote in March 2020, 2021. I think that this issue is just so underreported, underdiscussed. So I was thrilled when I was researching your work to find it. Um, you wrote about Tucker Carlson's obsession with Dr. Seuss and Taylor Lorenz, the amazing reporter from the New York Times, on the symptoms of the right's attitude of anti-elitism and stoking culture wars. So can you explain what you saw and how this thinking has evolved and begun to influence physical space now six months later and even politics itself? Oh my gosh, amazing. I'm glad that you saw that story. That's, that's I think, one of my favorite stories I've ever written, I will say. And it's funny because I was so, like, it was one of those stories that you're kind of like, your brain is malfunctioning and not really letting you write it. Like, you're like, wait, I, I, I can't do this. This story is not happening. Um, and then my editor was like, you, you have to write it, like, just write it. And I was like, okay. And then I wrote it and I loved it. So more inside baseball, but so yeah, basically exactly. And it's funny that you mentioned that too, because when you started this question talking about populism, I immediately just thought of Tucker Carlson. So basically like, <laughs> you know, as outlined in, in that story, the right's entire motivation, I mean, in terms of like the Tucker Carlson far right media world, I mean, we call it far right, but really it's just the it's the right. It's just, it's on Fox News. It's not like fringe platform or like OAN, which they're obviously similar, but Tucker Carlson loves to talk about extremely innocuous things that are barely newsworthy, basically. Um, and, you know, it's honestly, to me, it's kind of like a meme at this point. Like when Nicki Minaj tweeted about the cousin's friend's balls, I was like, okay, cannot wait for Tucker Carlson to talk about this tomorrow, of course. Like, you you know that anything that sounds it sounds enraging to like any to some person in in middle America who's like waiting to be angry or in anywhere in America to be clear who's waiting to be angry like that is what Tucker Carlson and people like him will talk about and Taylor you know the the reason that Tucker started talking about her in March 2021 had nothing to do with her reporting she is literally just a regular digital or tech reporter at the New York Times who covers internet culture like. She's not Maggie Haberman, you know, like there's no, she, she doesn't need to be this like big figure in this way, but she had tweeted on International Women's Day something about the mental health struggles she's faced as a journalist. And because of that, Tucker Carlson did a whole segment on basically how dare she, you know, say that she has mental health struggles. And I just don't, that argument just makes no sense, obviously. But it's funny because when I reached out to Fox News for comment for that story, they were like, oh, you know, Tucker stands by that she's a journalist and therefore she's allowed to be, you know, criticized and put under scrutiny. And I'm like, why would her personal claims of mental health struggles come to the same level, rise to the level of someone's actual work? Like that's not her journalism. And so it's, it's clearly all in bad faith. Like Tucker Carlson knows that her tweet is not her New York times reporting. It's literally just about her personal life. And all that is to like create this huge divide between elites and non-elites. And you know who's elite? Tucker Carlson. You know, he knows he's obviously way wealthier by a ridiculous amount than Taylor Lorenz, who's like, you know, a young New York, young New York Times reporter who's obviously really, really talented and really, really like famous basically at this point. But it's like, he knows that New York Times reporters don't get paid that much money. Like it's, it's he knows he's in journalism. Like it's a completely 
fake, basically. And no amount of plaid shirts or faux rural aesthetic daytime talk show sets will help ever rev- like hide the fact that he is a multimillionaire who comes yeah. from wealth and tries to position himself as a common person while actively endangering his viewers every single day with mis- and disinformation. 100%. I think what's so interesting, too, though, is is that his viewers, I mean, surely some Fox News viewers, I mean, now a lot of former Fox News fans say that they don't watch Fox News because it's too liberal and they just watch OAN. Like Donnie, Donnie O'Sullivan from CNN, amazing disinformation reporter, did uh, recently went out and I forget where he was. He went to some event where there were tons of kind of Trump supporters and and he said like, what do you, where do you get your news? And he was like, oh, I never watch Fox News. The guy said, he said Fox News is way too liberal or something. But it's like, why are people not realizing like, wait a minute, this man telling me to be mad at elites is on national television. So... By definition, he's one of them. And the other thing is the the whole concept of the anti-elitism thing doesn't make any sense. Like why and the fact that the fact that journalists, this is the craziest thing. The fact that journalists are are roped in with elites is the most ridiculous fake thing ever. We are not elite. Anyone who has ever read in any article about the media industry knows nobody gets paid well. Nobody gets like rich from being just a news reporter like it's just it's not it's just that's just not how it works and it's just you know part of the whole strategy of discrediting the media yeah and it's an endless game of propping up a boogeyman trying to capitalize on the fear of the boogeyman and then moving on to the next trend i loved the analysis that someone did earlier this year showing the decline of dr seuss was at the same time as the rise of critical race theory and then after that And then after that, it was ivermectin. And it's just one boogeyman after another, after another talking point after talking point. Okay, just really quick, because today, one of the trending topics on Twitter is the controversy surrounding Dave Chappelle uh, making transphobic comments and like supporting JK Rowling for being against trans people um, in his Netflix special. So the showrunner of Dear White People, who is a trans woman who is white, um, which, you know, obviously... It is it it is funny and unfortunate that the showrunner of Dear White People, which is like about black college students, um, is run by a white person. Okay, fair. That's something Twitter users can say. Um, but everyone on Twitter who is anti-trans is now using that to be like, wow. Oh wait, I didn't even say what the person said. The showrunner said, um, I'm not going to work with Netflix anymore because they're airing this kind of content. They said, like, I'm a trans person. This content from Dave Chappelle is endangering my life, and so I'm not gonna. You know, Dear White People is on Netflix, so it's, like, kind of intense to say that. Okay, so now everyone on Twitter is using that uh, comment to say, oh, wow, this trans person who is literally white running a show about black people um, is is boycotting Dave Chappelle, a black man, because of whatever, whatever. And the person didn't even say, she did not say she was boycotting him. That's not even what she said. And it's the same thing with the Dr. Seuss stuff. Nobody ever, like, Dr. Seuss books were never banned. That was, like, the big, that was the big lie of that that Tucker Carlson was spreading. Like, these books are banned. They're not banned. The literal publisher that publishes them doesn't want to print them anymore. Period. Like, huh? Nobody's banning them. No. Go to your local library. Go to a garage sale. Go anywhere. They exist. They're not on the banned book list. My God. So frustrating. So... Wow, those are annoying cultural trends, but I would love to ask you right now, what cultural trend are you currently most captivated by and what are you most puzzled by? Okay, 
I am most captivated by, honestly, this is like niche. This is just like my personal consumption right now. Um, micro influencers who are very open about their lives. So I follow a bunch of fitness and wellness Instagram influencers because I have a, I have a whole history of being really into fitness and whatever, um, less so now in life, but whatever, I still follow all these creators and several of them, um, have recently had babies and they basically are like posting like every aspect of like how much it sucks to like have a newborn basically on their Insta stories. And it's so like, I mean, I'm so fascinated. I'm literally like riveted by this content every day. I'm like, let me see what Sari is saying about what, how her baby slept last night. Like the baby's like eight days old. And I'm like, I need to know, like, I, I need to know what happened. Um, so <laughs> I'm surprised, I'm surprised that I like that content, but it's amazing. They're micro reality shows in that sense. It's like every day there's another update. Wow, are you thinking that the negativity of one micro-influencer is encouraging future bad discourse against their own children? <laughs> I don't think so. I think that what it is, though, is there is this huge issue in the, obviously, there is a giant subculture of mommy bloggers, parenting influencers. The vast majority of them only talk about the good stuff. It's like, look at my cute baby, everything. I mean, I, to be clear, I'm in my mid-20s. I'm single as hell. There's no baby in my life coming soon. I'm not trying to, I just don't want anyone to get the wrong idea from this that I'm like out here stalking the baby bloggers. But I am very familiar with their content and it's all very positive, very like, oh my God, look at this cute new swaddle I got for the new baby. Like, you know, little, little Jocelyn's being an angel this morning, whatever. And so there is kind of like a revolt happening in that community of other moms, like this mom I'm following and a few others um, who are like, actually having a newborn fucking sucks and you don't sleep and look how hideous I look and that's fine. Um, and I think that's honestly a good thing because I, you know, there's a lot, there's been a lot of discussion online in recent years of how like, you know, that kind of stuff is not like anything that's negative about parenting is just not really discussed on social media by like these bloggers and bloggers. And then it, that is, I think bad because then people think, Oh, it's so easy to have a baby. Um, and like, then when you have a baby and it's actually really shitty and hard, you're like, wow, I must be a terrible mom because why is this not fun and easy? So I think that's a good thing happening probably. Yeah. Yeah. It's a leveling. Yeah. It's like everyone is a regular person um, and like babies have to poop and cry a lot and you know, you can't make that look pretty for Instagram all the time. So I think that's a good thing. And um, a trend I don't really understand, which this is like more questioning a company's practices as well. I TikTok's algorithm in the last like year has become very weird in that it seems like they're pushing really the same kind of content all to everyone in a lot of ways like obviously your for your page is still catered to you and most of the time but like there are certain videos certain trends that will appear on every single person's for you page so like emily mariko's uh lifestyle influencer who makes these delicious like salmon rice bowls that became super viral in the last month like everyone no matter what their for you page was like was getting that and then the whole couch guy saga where it's like yeah that shit is crazy to me why is everyone i mean and that to me is like the most boring content i would never in my life want to watch a tiktok video of a girl visiting her long distance college boyfriend but because it like sparked basically like a true crime investigation frenzy on the app like it's literally on everyone's for you pages and it's weird that it is because it's like this random couple's 
random video. And so I, I'm very much keeping an eye on on that and feel like that's concerning. Yeah, it's definitely concerning. Moises and I actually talked about that on Wednesday. And then I saw both Callan Rosenblatt of NBC and Ryan Broderick of Garbage Day publish pieces about it. And it's like, it, it was almost as if the second the Gabby Petito case was solved, then Couch Guy mainstreamed and TikTok's algorithm we watched in real time, it shift from more custom for you pages to, okay, we can exploit a general population who are lured into the gamification of true crime, and we can create almost the mainstream water cooler culture alternate reality game. And it's a lot of the same addictive dopamine principles that we saw that hooked people into QAnon and a lot of the same elements that we saw uh, in dis and misinformation beats and, and everything that you've covered in the last year. So it's been a really grim trend, in my opinion. So I, I agree with you. Wow, that's that was really that was really well said, Josh, first of all. And second of all, yeah, I think I think you're 100% correct on the Gabby Petito timing. It's very interesting. Like, and it's funny too, because like very quickly, the Gabby Petito discourse evolved into like, actually, this is problematic because X, Y, and Z, like we shouldn't be so obsessed with this, but like clearly people need something to be obsessed with or TikTok thinks they do. Well, I mean, TikTok's clearly right. Cause it wasn't, you know, people did see that video and go, oh, did, was he cheating on her? Was he touching the girl next to him? Da, da, da. Like everyone was and analyzing it. But I guess there, you know, there is this hunger for that content. And it's someone's personal life. His response was essentially to tell people that they need to step outside because he was facing so much harassment. Anyway, anyone, everyone knows way too much about Couch Guy. But my last question, ahead of the Meme in the Moment festival, what is your favorite meme? I, okay, I thought about it actually in the back of my head while I was speaking. And I think that my answer is either I pretend I do not see it. Like even just there, there is the specific image that it's like the emoji and then of like the face and then the hand is like, I pretend I do not see it. Um, but then also I like literally just say that I pretend I do not see it. Um, and then probably though my most, I would say my most used is the screenshot of the Twitter DMs that's like, I'm sorry, oh, I don't have time to read this. I'm sorry that happened to you. I'm ha I'm happy for you, or I'm sorry that it happened, or so whatever it says, I forget now. That's um, classic. That's I do that every time I'm missing a couple hours of chat in the group chat. <laughs> that's a great meme. That's a fantastic meme. And Rachel, yeah. thank you so much for your time. This is such a pleasure. Um, where can people follow you on social media, keep up to date with your work? And do you have any clues about what you might be speaking about at Meme in the Moment? Josh, thank you so much for having me. So happy to be here. Loved this conversation. Oh my goodness, not my Slack popping off while I'm trying to sign off here. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Rach underscore Greenspan. Um, that's my main place. Just go there. Um, my author page, if you want to read my stories, even though I don't write that much anymore, I'm mostly editing, is insider.com slash author slash Rachel dash E dash Greenspan. Um, and at Meme in the Moment, I don't know, maybe QAnon. Maybe that's my cue. My, my clue. <gasps> Freudian slip. Your cue. <laughs> that's my cue. <laughs> Rachel, thank you so much. 
Thanks again to Rachel for joining me on the Digital Void podcast. You can join Rachel, as well as an all-star lineup of speakers, for Digital Void's Halloween-themed Meme in the Moment Festival, live at Caveat NYC, on Wednesday, October 27th at 7 p.m. Eastern. Tickets are available now via caveat.nyc or digitalvoid.media. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you there.